Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. As usual, this is a Tuesday episode, so our friend and producer Hugo Lindgren is here with us. Hugo, how's it going? It's going all right, Bradley. I just went into the um, like little kitchen area in your office, yeah. and I got a La Croix. So yeah. I have two, que- two really important questions before we uh-huh. start. Yeah. Um, what's your go-to flavor of La Croix, and how do you feel about hibiscus? Um, you're holding up a lime, which I also like. Right. I think it's sort of like close to neutral, but a little bit. Um, so that's number one. Number two is, I don't have a strong feeling about hibiscus, but I'm still confused as to what pamplemousse means. It's grapefruit. Yeah, I've heard that, but yet it doesn't quite taste like grapefruit. Oh, really? Maybe it's just the bad flavor. And the third is, look, I think La Croix is a great product, but I still wonder if like in 20 years everyone's gonna have cancer from drinking it because it's like somehow they make these drinks taste good with zero of anything in it there's yeah. something fucking in it right <laughs> like i understand what they say but like i kind of wonder a little bit if like maybe you know this is some craze that we're all going down the rabbit hole and then it turns out to be a bad bad for you okay well thank you for planting that seed yeah sure uh, in my i'm sure you'll gladly keep drinking that can um so uh, one topic we will never discuss at length on this podcast yes. is, is hockey, right. but I need to tell you about the experience of being a Madison Square night? guy. I did. Yeah. And so two things I want to say. First of all, one of the things, that, so it was an incredible game. The Rangers yeah. won in overtime. They, they came back from a 3-1 deficit to, to, to beat the Penguins. Very, contra- very controversial. But so in the, in the, um, in, at the Garden, they've, the, the Rangers have worked pretty hard to, like, recruit other uh, sports teams, like New York sports yeah, teams. Yeah, I heard for, like, the big were there. Right? Well, that's what I was going to say. So, so the, there was, like, Quickly was there. There was a bunch of Giants there. But the Mets actually had a whole box. Yeah. And I think there were, like, 20 guys. I was listening to the Mets game on the radio yesterday, and they were talking about how the Mets had a box. Oh, really? Yeah. So I think that was really cool. But here's the second thing. So the two big heroes last night were Artemi Panarin and Igor Shosturkin, who are, like, two of the Rangers' biggest stars. Okay who are both Russian. Yeah. And it's incredible. There's like someone like Omerta or something around like the Russian players in the NHL because it's kind of crazy. You mean that they don't talk about Putin they, in the war? They, they, at the very beginning of the war, they talked to uh, Alex Ovechkin, the, the star for the Capitals, who's a Putin supporter. Yeah. And he kind of parried the question. He said basically the only thing that he could say in that situation, which is that he wants the war to end and he's for yeah. peace, you know. Um, but it's interesting that the the Rangers guys are very soft spoken. They are not um, they are not big political flag yeah, bearers. I mean, also keep in mind. So these guys have been playing hockey since they could like literally stand up, right? They right. learned how to skate, and this is all that they. Not to say they're not capable of having views on other issues, but they're focused on hockey. They live in another country. They're playing in a totally different world, and we know that the vast vast majority of people in any society are disengaged politically. That's why nobody fucking votes in the U.S. And so the notion that two young men, what are they, in their 20s probably? Yeah, I guess Panarin's probably 30 at this yeah, point. Yeah, the two young men who are professional athletes who have been focused their entire life intensely on this one thing might not have a lot to say about geopolitics is not surprising. Oh, no, I'm not, I'm not surprised by that at all. I, I, I actually think it's pretty cool that, that they're supported by the fans as they are. And it's just, it's just interesting that, like— I don't think the fans care either. No, they don't care. I think you're right. But it's, it's still— I mean, it's it's. You'd think that like you know, there's like that example of the of the American uh, women's basketball player who's like in detention in Russia for having. Yeah, um, they, they misjudged that one. They thought it would give them all kinds of leverage, and they didn't realize that no one cares about the WNBA. Unfortunately, <laughs> well, I feel terrible for her, but like, there's there's no like massive protest in the street to free Brittany Grenier. There should be though. If it was right? like LeBron James, would be a little different. I, can't, um, I guess. I'm not saying it's it's right. I'm just saying that that's the reality of it. But look, also part of it is. Because Putin is such a strong man, and he's such a villain, and he's almost a cartoonish-like villain at this point, 
I don't blame the Russian people for the war in the Ukraine, and I don't think anyone really does. So as a result, like, there's no reason to be, you know, hostile towards your average Russian person. It's just it's purely their their government. It's purely Putin. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. I just think that the the fact that that uh, Putin hasn't played games. I mean, he has some leverage over these guys. They don't have to be playing for American audiences. Um, I, well, I, I'll tell you, that would be a way to piss off. So right now, look, even though he is a dictator and has absolute power, he still has to worry about a coup just like every other dictator, right? right. And there are things that I'm sure he knows that if he were to do would piss off regular Russian people so much that it's not worth it. Just in the same way, like in the U.S., there's a sort of general adage of, for politicians, like, don't fuck with people's cars, right? Just leave it alone. Because, <laughs> don't fuck with people's cars. Yeah. because and, and I think it's now turning into don't fuck with people's phones. Um, and I think it was cars. But it's one of those things where, like, once you start playing around with it and, you know, this kind of – and I'm, I'm for every kind of, you know, electric vehicles and emissions caps and whatever else. But just politically speaking, the answer is once you start doing that – then all of a sudden people who have no idea who you are and are not going to come out to vote against you because they don't even know who their state senator is or even what a state senator is now all of a sudden will. Cars, that's an interesting – so that's the third rail and of I th- American I think politics it's shifting cars. over to phones. I think right. it was cars, now it's phones. <laughs> right. Um, okay, we're going to talk about some serious stuff. Yeah. Although you managed to make the hockey discussion quite serious there, Bradley. So I'm well, serious. I, wa- I want to give you some credit for that. Um, so you wanted you you wanted to talk a lot today about hunger. Yeah. Um, we've talked many times in the podcast, especially recently, about uh, what you're doing to to get uh, school meals. Um, yeah, this made is a little, a, a little broader. This is a little broader. So, yeah. so tell me why you wanted to talk about so, and what what exactly is on your mind. You know, mind. so there were articles in the papers this weekend. I think the one specifically that I saw was the one in the Journal on Saturday mm-hmm. um, about global food shortages caused by the war in the Ukraine. Right. right. The, the disruption in Ukraine is a, and Russia are huge producers of wheat and grain, and right. as a result. Since that's not now being exported, it's thrown off the entire global food supply chain. Right. And what it means is in the U.S., there's high inflation, but it means in other countries, people just don't have food altogether. Right. right? Uh, India, which is normally a big exporter uh, of wheat and grain, has actually stopped exporting it to try to keep it for the people of India, which makes sense. Right. Uh, But then, of course, other countries that rely on the Indian exports now won't have it. And so there's a global food shortage yet again because of this sort of horrible, horrible person in, in Putin. But it got me thinking a little bit sort of we can't sort of make policy for the whole world because it just, A, the U.S. doesn't have either the authority or the right or the ability to do that. But but we should be able to make policy for ourselves. I know that we're actually a wildly dysfunctional government society, but at least in theory. And so if you think about it, um, public education in this country is a right, right? No matter who you are, what your immigration status is, anything else – you have the right to go to a public school and be educated. Um, emergency room access is a right in this country, no matter, again, who you are or anything else. If you need treatment, you can go to the emergency room if you have no insurance and you can get it. It may be not particularly great treatment, but you can get it. Why isn't food a right? Like, to me, it's, it actually seems like food is even more important than those other two things. Like, sure, if you have a serious you know, illness or injury or something like that, you want to have to go to the hospital, but that's generally the exception, not the norm for people. And yeah, education is important, but it's not nearly as important as not starving to death, right? Right. And yet food in this country is not seen as a right. It's seen as a luxury and a privilege. Um, so I started looking like, okay, what would it take to effectively end hunger in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. And did a bunch of research. And, and the best number I could find was about $25 billion a year in new government programs um, would would effectively eliminate hunger by meaning that every single person who needed it would have readily access to 
food, right? Whether it's kids at schools with breakfast and lunch or right. food pantries, whatever else, that still may mean that some people won't access it or people who are mentally ill can't do it for themselves, but right. at least you're making it clearly available right. to everyone. So the U.S. federal budget this year was $6.8 trillion. I added up the, the budgets of all 50 states and it got to about $2 trillion. Right. So that's $8.8 trillion. So I, I don't know if my math is right or not, but $25 billion, according to, to my calculators, 0.0002% of that $8.8 trillion total. 0.0002%. So if you make $100,000 a year, it'd be like spending you know a fraction of a penny. Um, and so I don't understand how we live in a world where we spend money on so much stupid shit, whether it's like wasteful government, you know, bureaucracy or military hardware that we don't need or, you know, subsidies for ethanol and things like that that are purely based on trying to gain favor in the Iowa presidential caucus and have nothing to do with good public policy. And yet we can't provide money for fucking food for people. Well, the, I mean, there is a, obviously a gigantic food stamp program, the SNAP program. What is wrong with that program? Nothing's wrong with it. It's a very effective program. It, it's too limited, right? I mean, it's a it's a hundred billion dollar program, isn't it? it? It's a huge program. I don't know right. the total cost. But it's a huge program, but but nonetheless, it wouldn't take. So if you think about what we've been doing uh, to us philanthropies on hunger, is we effectively are just kind of slightly expanding these programs in right. different states. Right? right. We are passing bills to say um, the state of Kentucky will now provide breakfast after the bell to all kids. Mm-hmm. The state of Vermont will provide school breakfast and lunch to all students. The uh, you know, state of, we got a waiver granted two weeks ago, the state of Arizona can now expand the number of senior citizens that have access to SNAP, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we've spent, I don't know. SNAP I, is the, is the food, food stamp stamps, program, right? right? So we've spent somewhere probably in the neighborhood total of around $3 million on this stuff so mm-hmm. far. And we have helped unlock a billion and a half in new federal and state funding, mainly federal, um, for hunger programs, right? Mm-hmm. So the ROI is is exponential, right? Like would be would be the greatest investment in the in the history of investments uh, if you were to sort of invest three million dollars and make a, a billion and a half, or you know, maybe not the greatest, but it'd be pretty good. Um, and so. Achieving this is not that expensive or not that hard. And one of the reasons, well, other ways that this kind of caught my attention is I was walking down the street on Saturday and I passed a bus shelter that had like an anti-hunger ad mm-hmm. on it. Now I understand that the ad space is donated and a lot of the creative is donated and whatever else, but it seems to me that there's you know just a, a misunderstanding of this issue and a misallocation of resources, which mm-hmm. is making that ad still cost somebody something, right? right? Um, and yeah, it's important for people to be aware of it. Like whether the advertising works, I don't know. But if you think about it, for generally no more than a couple hundred thousand dollars, usually less, we're able to pass legislation in a state that expands access to food for hundreds of thousands of people, you know, 12 million so far over the course of our work on this. Um, why are we doing things like ads, right? Why aren't we just saying, okay, it's pretty simple. We need another $25 billion in public spending to really fill all of the gaps on food supply in this country. Let's do that. And all of the efforts should be around politically making that happen, right? And yeah, food banks are, are great and, and important, um, but would be less needed, actually, if we, if we provided the resources uh, publicly. And what's the resistance as you go from state to state for, uh, for, for doing this? Is it simply sort of budget hawk? Some of it, of? yeah. So some of it is ideological. Uh, generally, this happens more in red states. They don't mm-hmm. want to don't believe in expanding government programs of, of any kind. Ironically, frequently those states are, are where people need the help the most, right? right? But they somehow 
if you're a legislator in, you know, Kentucky, or we actually passed something in Kentucky, so let's, let's, let's call it Tennessee, you somehow just see it as, you know, money for poor black people in the cities who don't vote for you, right? right? When the reality is your rural constituents need it just as badly, if not worse. But nonetheless, that's become the, the kind of political dynamic around all of this. So that's number one. And then number two is just prioritization, right? So like even in Vermont, we passed the bill the other week to create universal school meals, but it was a fight. And the reason it was a fight was there are other people in the legislature that had their own views as to how money should be spent. And by spending the money on school meals, it took money away from other priorities. I understand right. that. But at the same time, I just don't understand how we live in a world where it seems to me that other than sort of basic freedom of safety, you know, food is the next most tangible fundamental thing that, that people should have. And solving at least the U.S. food crisis and shortage is just not that expensive and not that hard. And it just seems to me there's a misallocation of resources and thought on all sides, right? So there's a misallocation of resources and thought by state and federal and local government in that they're prioritizing other things more than they should be compared to food. There's a misallocation of resources on the nonprofit side where they're doing things like advertising, which like, sure, it makes them feel more relevant probably and maybe it helps their fundraising a bit. But again, it's the wrong way to spend money. And then there's 34,000 people, based on the research I did yesterday, who are worth at least $100 million in this country. And, you know, look, I'm a capitalist through and through, and, and people have the right to spend money on whatever they want. But um, if for around $3 million bucks we've been able to sort of expand access to food to 12 million people, why the fuck aren't more people doing this, right? And it's, it's not that we're so extraordinary. It's that we're not. It's that what we're doing is easily scalable and replicable. Yeah, passing bills is hard. You need people with some expertise to do that. But it's just not that expensive, right? And, right. and you know, people can spend their money whatever they, they want. But when, when you just think about all the stupid shit people spend money on, art, planes, jewelry, boats, memorabilia, you know, donations to Harvard that has a $30 billion endowment. Of course, now that I'm saying this, they'll probably never invest in our fund, but whatever. <laughs> they haven't anyway yet. Um, someone recently spent $195 million for a Warhol, you know, a painting of Marilyn Monroe. Um, I just don't get how, whether it's among those people or the government, we don't find the money for this, right? right? I, I just like, and, and I don't also get how, look, and I haven't always had this kind of money, um, only really started when I started working in the private sector in 2010, but I did do a little inventory of like, okay, how much money have we given away in the last 12 years, whether it's to voting or hunger or institutions that we care about or other charities or friends and family who need help or candidates that we believe in, which is typically then goes back to voting and hunger. Um, and I won't say the number, but it made me feel pretty good that, that when I then added up roughly what I thought our spending was in those 12 years, the spending was meaningfully less than what we gave away. And you know what? We don't suffer or lack for anything, right? Like there's nothing you could possibly really legitimately want. You could spend more on clothes, I think. Uh, you know, but, but I don't know. You just don't like the choices I make, I Just guess. kidding. But, um, <laughs> but the point is Bradley's this. very well dressed We're, this we're not uh, in any way punishing ourselves or making sacrifices right. so that we can feed hungry people. We're buying basically anything we could fucking think of, right? Like we have, we live without any kind of budget. And yet still, um, I guess I have less money in my bank account as a result, but like, it, you know, we're able to do this. And it just seems to me that you live in a world where you probably only live once. I don't believe in reincarnation. I don't believe in an afterlife, although I do believe in God. And 
what I like about Judaism, especially, and I've said this on the podcast before, is the notion of you're probably just here for one period of time. So if the average lifespan now is, you know, what, 82 or whatever it is, that's what you got, right? And ultimately, if the ultimate quotient that only really matters is happiness, right, um, the things that tend to ultimately drive it the most based on all of the science around this is one, relationships, and two, fulfillment, right? right? You know, yachts are sort of not anywhere on that list. Andy Warhol <laughs> paintings are not anywhere on that list. Um, and I understand that people do it more for status because it's how they're trying to feel fulfilled. Um, but it just seems like, like how do people who are so smart that can make so much money um, so fucking clueless when it comes to what they could do with the money to make themselves feel better about themselves. Like part of the reason why I spend time trying to do good things all week is selfish. It's that it makes me feel better about myself, right? It's, right. it's not, you know, so like I just don't understand how we live in a country where A, food is not a right, B, when, when making it available to everyone would, would cost 0.0002% of the budget, we don't do it. Um, how we have a nonprofit world. And look, the hunger groups, I have to say, um, nice people, totally fucking clueless by and large when it comes to politics. That's why we have to do what we do, which is, you know, bills that are eminently passable, like school meals, um, until we showed up and started hiring lobbyists and doing polling and opposition research and all the stuff that it takes, they weren't passing them, right? So you have, you have a hunger community that's wildly unsophisticated, at least politically, um, and, and a community of wealthy people that have just seems to me like insane priorities. And like, no wonder the world is so fucked up. Can I ask you two basic questions about the hunger campaign that yeah. have just been in the back of my mind as we've talked about it over the last several months? One, um, how um, how did you decide on school meals as the kind of like the the linchpin of the program? Why is it that? I mean, yeah, I mean, we didn't start off with that. So we okay. started off. I think it was 2016 or 17 with just hunger in general. Right. Um, and look, I've been over the last 30 years you know, weekly either volunteered in a soup kitchen or Meals on Wheels or some sort of thing, right, for, for the vast majority of the last 30 years. And it wasn't kids-focused, right? If, if anything, the stuff that I'd done in person was more seniors-focused, right? right. Um, but I think what we learned is there is a huge number of children who are not getting food. Right. Um, somehow, maybe it's not different, but it feels even worse for kids not to have food than adults. Mm -hmm. Then the whole point of school is obviated because if you can't, if you're hungry, you can't study, you can't pay attention. So right. you're wasting, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars on, on education that kids can't actually access because they can't pay attention because they don't have food. Um, and the bills are a little easier to pass because right. they're more sympathetic and you can kind of use it to box in politicians more. And so that's why we've gravitated towards this. You know, in any given legislative session, we've got bills that are outside of school meals, right? Like I said, we did, uh, you know, expansion um, to SNAP for senior citizens, both in Arizona, and we passed that last year in Texas, amazingly. Mm -hmm. um, so either we have a bill in Massachusetts right now on hunger-free college um, campuses. We had a bill like that in Maryland, and the Maryland food advocates sort of really fucked it up, and the, the bill failed. Mm -hmm. But... Um, but that was also based on, on college students. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's more just that we've found that the greatest efficacy uh, lies in school meals, but it's, it's not the totality of what we do. One more question. How do you ensure, like, quality of food? So if states throw some money at the yeah, thing, a question. How, do you, how do you make so sure? So I have uh, made a threshold decision that could easily be wrong, but I'm not going to worry about that. Okay. That, yes, uh, you know, 
school meals and all that can be gross. I don't know what your kids say, but, you know, at least when Lyle comes home from school and I said, what would you have for lunch? I'll say, like, a tangerine or something like that because he thinks the food is so disgusting. But – and I don't think it actually do you, is. Yeah, do you think it's that bad? No, because Abby always says it's fine. And um, I used to eat breakfast there with Lyle when we had the disparity and the drop-off drop off between Abby and Lyle, and it was fine. Um, <laughs> right. So who knows? But, um, you know, in fact, he's been over me to, like, to, like get it, some permission to bring in his own lunch, and I won't do it. <laughs> His friend William has that permission, but I, I won't do it. What do, what do you have to do to get that permission? Is I think it, you have to have a letter from your doctor making some cases to why you medically— Like gluten-free kind of thing? Or yeah, or just like you need access to calories in a way that has to be reliably provided by the parent or something like that. But I'm, I, I won't do that. Um, so, um, so I, you know, look— You decide not to worry about the— Yeah, and, and there's a lot of people who do, and, and it's, I'm glad that they're— Doing it because otherwise counting ketchup as a vegetable is, is the insane. Famous Ronald Reagan thing, right? But I do think at the same time that the threshold problem is just lack of access to food, mm-hmm. and then the next step, of course, is lack of access to healthy food. Um, but I think you got to solve the, the the access thing first. Okay, so um, we're going to pivot to uh, tech regulation. Um, it's obviously been a a, a pretty uh, pretty hot topic, in particular with with the takeover of of Twitter by Elon Musk. Although I guess that's weirdly up in the air all of a sudden. Yeah, I, th- I think in part because I, I just wonder. I, I didn't get a response. Two friends of mine are both uh, psychologists and really kind of successful ones. Well, Charlie, one of them. Uh, mm-hmm. And I sent him and the other guy a text and said, you know, Musk in many ways is like an absolutely incredible human being. You could argue he's done more to prevent climate change than anyone in the history of the world, right? And he's obviously an incredible visionary. But it almost feels like there's something untreated about the guy, right? That he just desperately chases after whatever will get him attention and publicity without really much putting much thought into it at all. So it's like, I'm buying Twitter. Oh, then he kind of does some diligence. Like, oh, this is a terrible fucking company to buy. <laughs> I'm not buying Twitter. Whatever it is, it's just endlessly back and forth on absolutely everything. And I think it's just an addiction to attention that drives so much of what he does. So, yeah, maybe it's because there were, you know, genuine due diligence problems that Twitter didn't provide to him and his bankers. Um, maybe he's just trying to renegotiate the price, or maybe this is a guy who seems to sort of speak first and think second. Um, but putting that aside, here's kind of the angle I want to take here. So the last two weeks, just coincidentally, I testified last week before the Federal Trade Commission on kind of tech policy around big tech companies. And then the week before, I was in a conference that was kind of EU-related called RAID, um, and I was guess the American on on the panel talking about the same kinds of things. And, you know, what is very clear to me is there's almost no dispute among anyone who sort of has any semblance of knowledge about this stuff that doesn't have an economic stake in Apple or Amazon or whatever it is that there needs to be significantly more regulation. We talk about this on the podcast all the time, but whether it's platform liability immunity or antitrust regulation or privacy or so many other things, it feels like the only people who are opposed to it are the people at these companies and the people on their payrolls, right? right? And yet because our federal political system is so fucked up, because primary turnout is so low, because gerrymandering makes the primaries mean the only thing that matters and everything else, um, I kind of wonder if... Not to give up. Like, I, it's interesting. My remarks to the FTC, I don't know how they took it because I actually had a meeting right after I finished speaking, so I signed off. It was on Zoom. Mm-hmm. But I said, you guys have failed completely. Actually, Washington has failed completely. You have failed in this way, this way, this way, this right. way. Uh, I'm glad you're finally trying to do something about it. But, you know, 
you need to do a lot better. Right. Um, but I kind of wonder if maybe the answer in part isn't just like everything we do, take the fight to the states, right? Just with the U.S. federal government is is just let's fucking write it off as an entity that literally is so dysfunctional that it's not even worth spending time thinking about and talking about. So you want the states to step in and and put some handcuffs on these companies so, in terms so, of yeah, it's hard because there's obviously states have limited statutory power to to contravene federal law, right? But right. I'll give an example. Brad Hoyleman is a state senator here in, in Manhattan, really smart guy. I like him a lot, um, you know, to my left on certain things, but I think he's great overall. He introduced a bill that would hold social media platforms accountable for knowingly promoting disinformation, violent hate speech, and other unlawful content that can harm others. Right. So he doesn't have the ability to override Section 230 and place mm-hmm. liability on Twitter and Facebook and everything else, but he came up with a clever workaround. The, the bill didn't really go anywhere in a typical fashion. You know, Instead of saying, here's what the bill is aimed to achieve, let's try figure out to do it, you just had every smart person talking about why you couldn't do it because of the Constitution or this. You know, This is the disease of sort of overeducated people who don't actually never see the forest for the trees. Right. Um, but overall, even though Hoyleman's bill didn't go anywhere, um, it could, right? And there's no real reason you couldn't replicate this in other states. Um, California, a couple of years ago, did pass their own privacy framework called the CCPA, which is like the European GDPR. It does extend more protections to consumers around their data. Not enough, I would argue, but still more. But I just kind of wonder that, like, I sit here on these podcasts and over and over again, I'm sure the listeners are so sick of hearing me talk about this, about <laughs> how we have to repeal Section 230 and pass on GDPR in the U.S. and whatever else, and yet it doesn't happen, and we know why it doesn't happen. And, you know, state governments can be messy, but but things can get done, right? And so why don't we just move the fight to them? Is part of the problem that um, there isn't, like, this defined constituency? Like, the tech groups obviously have a very, like, serious target of what they want and what they want to maintain and then on the other side is what? Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's what it is. So it's it's individuals whose data is exploited, which would mean every single you and me and every single person listening to this podcast, right. right? But in many ways, I don't know if you talked to your daughter about it, but like I've talked to Abby about it, and she just sort of accepts that there's no privacy and right. there's no either that there's there's no protection of her data or anything else. But, but how does she feel about the idea of there being actually dangerous ideas that are being sort of like presented to her, like? I don't know. I haven't had that conversation with her. And because she's such a kind of unconventional thinker, I think mm-hmm. she might say she wants access to all ideas. Right. Uh, so I'm not totally sure. But, um, but yeah, I mean, o- o- overall, it's, but it's, it's kids who are harmed significantly, especially teenage girls, um, by what they see on Instagram in terms of you know, body image and eating disorders and cutting and everything else like that. Um, but effectively, it's, it's almost every segment of society – but it's not organized, right? right? Because there's no sort of it doesn't fall into kind of natural groups in the way that, that other issues do. It's mm-hmm. People who are pro-choice or, or anti-choice or whatever it is. Um, so even though if you actually took the U.S. population and said, okay, who's on one side, who's on the other, it'd be like 99 percent to one percent, or maybe much not even one percent. But the one percent is you know wildly powerful and wealthy and organized, and the 99 percent are not. And you have individual people, whether it's Lena Khan, who's the FTC chairwoman, or Brad Hoyman, the New York State Senate, or others who are trying to do things. Um, but, you know, they're, they're doing it uh, without really a constituency that recognizes the value of it. Um, and, you know, going up against people who really have tremendous resources. How much of an obstacle do you think it is that the, the big states, certainly New York, California, Texas, they want tech jobs. So they want these companies investing and employing people in their states. 
and that will mitigate against them doing some, some, some of it, right? You know, but look, California is the Silicon Valley. Yeah. They have the CCPA, so, so they've passed the most stringent privacy protections in the country. Um, now, look, you could argue, and we've thought this in the podcast a lot, right. that it is backfiring, right? right? And that companies are moving to Austin and to Miami, and they are losing tech jobs, and Tesla and HP and Dropbox and all these countries, all these companies have, have left California. So, yeah, may, maybe it does have an impact. Um, but at the same time, like when Amazon wanted to build their second headquarters in, in Queens a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. nobody was talking about privacy or platform liability or antitrust. It was about, you know, whether there should be a helipad for Jeff Bezos um, at, at the campus, right? So, like, th- these aren't really, I don't think these are issues that would get in the way of states trying to pursue jobs. Right. Uh, there was another mass shooting over the weekend in Buffalo. Um, a lot of people started talking immediately about uh, the role of social media and promoting these ideas, uh, the sort of racist agenda that the shooter had. Um, I guess he live did a live feed of the yeah. shooting um, on Twitch, which was taken down pretty quickly, but still there was a whole use of social media. But you actually are not yeah, that. Yeah, here's the thing. So, so Governor Hochul right. did a whole thing blaming social media for And look, right. I just spent the last five, seven minutes talking about the ills of social media. So right. I'm, I'm all for social media regulation. But when you blame the internet or you blame the mental health crisis, and again, I believe that we should fund mental health uh, on parity to, to physical health. So right. um, I agree with both those arguments. Mm-hmm. You're doing the NRA's work for them. The reason we have shootings is because we have fucking guns, right. right? We have so many guns in this country and such easy access to guns that if there are literally hundreds of millions of guns in this country every so often, which means these days, probably you know, every couple of days, Somebody is going to access one of those guns and use it in a wildly destructive way, right. whether it's a school shooting or a church shooting or a you know, supermarket shooting like we saw in Buffalo or anything else. And like to me, like it, it, we keep sort of hiding the ball, right? <laughs> it's pretty simple. We have a violence and gun epidemic in this country because there are guns, right? right? And I kind of feel like if you're a politician and there's a shooting and you're not on the record for, you know, gun background checks and assault weapons bans and things like that. I don't want to fucking hear about your hopes and prayers and vigils and thoughts and all that stuff. It is directly your fault. But you understand why Hochul chooses social media over the guns thing right? Well, in this I think she, she talked about guns, too. And look, I think partly also she is an upstate politician, and upstate politicians, even Democrats, try to balance the— Thread the needle. Thread the needle, right, rather than just taking a strong moral stand. Even Bernie Sanders— in Vermont for decades and decades until he really became a huge national figure and got called on it was was effectively for gun rights, not because I think he believed in them, but out of political cowardice. Um, so, you know, I, I think what Hoke was talking about is right, but I think she is, I don't think she's deliberately doing it, but she's eventually playing hide the ball and it's like just completely out of the NRA playbook. And I, I just think we're at a point now where like we're, we're almost making it too complicated as to why we have these shootings, it's pretty simple. For as long as guns are this easily accessible and available, this is going to happen. So let's stop even talking about it, complaining about it, worrying about it. We've made the choice that we will have constant mass shootings in this country by making the choice that people have readily available access to guns. And let's just fucking accept that. Or if we don't accept that, let's do something about it. But we go through the same kabuki dance every fucking time um, and it's not only frustrating, it, it's counterproductive. Um, let's switch uh, short discussion um, on New York City politics. 
Um, the city is facing the possibility of a federal takeover of Rikers Island, which has obviously been a big mess for a long time. Yeah. Um, the New York Post ran an editorial saying Mayor Adams should just let it happen. I like agree. it's time to give up. Um, tell me why you agree. What's the what's so the argument? So he, here's the broader point I wanted to make because okay. we don't talk that much about like criminal justice policy on this this podcast, which is there's no way that I can think of where the city will properly reform and manage Rikers. As a result, it is a no-win proposition. And if you're Eric Adams, why would you leave yourself consistently vulnerable on this flank to the far left, um, to the New York Times and all of that, when you can just take the problem off your hands completely? Federal government, here you go. It's yours. Have at it. Do whatever the fuck you want. We appreciate whatever you can do. This is off our plate. Um, it's just like by, by demanding control over this, he's just leaving a giant gaping wound open for others to exploit um, when he certainly doesn't have to. Let, let me give you a tech corollary. You know, Facebook has spent the last decade um, insisting that they can handle uh, content moderation on their platform. Right. We don't need government. We don't need academics. We don't need regulation. We got it. Of course they don't have it, right? <laughs> In retrospect, the best thing they could have done, although they didn't see this, was to say in day one when it came up, yeah, yeah, absolutely right. You know what? The internet is this incredible thing. Facebook is this incredible thing, but it's still really new, and we don't fully understand all of its manifestations and implications, and we can't control all of it ourselves. So yes, why don't we have a partnership of business, academia, regulators, all these different experts, and then you know what would happen when there was misinformation on these platforms or live stream shootings or anything else? You point at them, and you say, yeah, I agree, we gave them the power a decade ago to do this, and they still haven't done anything about it. And, and, and like instead, they own the entire problem and have incurred all of the cost of it. And so I think there are times where you don't fight, right? There, and, and this is one of those times. But let's say you're Adams, and you think that if the federal government takes it over, they're not going to be able to do anything about it, and he thinks it's a big problem that they need to do something about it. Like what? what, 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 what has New York City been able to do about this effectively, right? Mike Bloomberg, who... Best mayor I think we've ever had, right? I, I wasn't alive for LaGuardia, but in, in that category. You know, there are still issues like homelessness or NYCHA or Rikers that despite all of his brilliance and all of his management style and all of his quality team and everything else, was really hard to make progress on, right? right. There are some issues that are just incredibly hard to solve. And I don't see any, I haven't heard Eric Adams lay out some brilliant policy agenda or ideas for Rikers that would transform the whole thing. It's purely like, politician, this is mine, and I don't want to give away power to this. And that's all it is. And like, to me, you know, I understand why maybe everyone feels protective of their own turf, but you're shooting yourself in the foot. You see this dad in the editorial that 1,400 jail guards call out sick or, or out sick yeah. without having to show any proof every day? Yeah. So you know what? 1,400? Wipe many? it out. Make it, no longer make it a, a city a union day? and a city job. Make it federal because the city, the, the Corrections uh, Benevolent Association, COBA, um, is, an, is a really powerful union despite their head recently going to jail for all kinds of corruption. Right. Um, and... The city has no control or power over them whatsoever, right? They run rampant. So I would say the city has proven that it cannot handle this thing. Um, so both for substantive reasons and also the, the point of this was for political reasons. Um, sometimes, you know, you have to know what you don't know and just sort of let someone else handle it. Shall, shall we end on a high note here? Sure. Uh, you want to recommend a book? I do. Um, there's a author named Rich Cohen who, who writes really, and it turns out you know him a little bit, uh, writes like really interesting kind of biographies. Um, I had read one last year called The Fish That Ate the Whale, which mm -hmm. is about how a 
Russian immigrant uh, ended up owning United Fruit, which, by the way, not a positive thing. This guy was responsible for coups all over the world and, and starvation. Like, certainly, you know, if anything, the book was probably a little too nice to him. But, um, but I like Cohen's work. I had read a Rolling Stone's book he did that I thought was pretty good. Um, he wrote one about kind of Jewish gangsters that I ordered because I figured Lyle would, would like it too. <laughs> um, but he wrote a book about his dad called The Adventures of Herbie Cohen, The World's Greatest Negotiator. And his dad was genuinely a really big deal, right? He's mm-hmm. considered like the father of modern negotiation uh, strategy, wrote these best-selling books about it, you know, everything from negotiating nuclear weapons treaties to hostages to, you know, union contracts and, and everything else. Um, but it was really about just this guy's life and his philosophy and how this person came out of Bensonhurst, you know, poor Jewish family out of Bensonhurst. And he basically just kind of took life in a different way than most people did, which is he just didn't give a fuck. And he did what he thought what made sense and, and what he wanted to do. And he didn't really worry about a lot of the normal strictures of what society says is, is acceptable or not. And he achieved a tremendous amount uh, because of it. And it just seemed to me that, like, this is an example that we, we could all emulate. And then also for me culturally, because so much of it was about, you know, this Jewish guy from, from Brooklyn, even though, you know, I could see in previous generations of people that I know, you, you could see a lot of parallels there. Um, and also you can see in some ways how... You know, so like Rich Cohen's a, he, he's a successful writer. I think his brother's a successful cardiologist or something like that, or his cousin, his sister's a lawyer. You know, successful people, right? But not as successful as their dad, right? And I do worry a bit that every successive generation in this country gets a little bit dumber and a little bit lazier. And the people who come here, who immigrate, who immigrate here or are first generation here, kind of have this toughness and drive and risk tolerance um, that we lose, and this is true across every ethnicity and every demographic. Um, you know, I'm, I'm more aware of it for Jews because that, that's my world, but right. it's across the board. Um, and look, the best way to fix that is just have as much immigration as you can, right? So as long as you keep letting maybe the new group are, are you know, Nigerian and Colombian and not, you know, Eastern European and Irish, but, like, that's the way you fix it. But it is interesting that, like, it, there is sort of a constant decline I think not there are obviously exceptions to this it. this was supposed to be a high note Bradley we were, we, this was a recommended book and oh, now, now, anyway now, it's, you're, it's, now you're bringing us back into it, the muck here it's, it's a fun book <laughs> you should read it good see you next week bye <laughs>